on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg, and it's great to be with you all. Thanks for tuning in again. It's great to be back. Are you doing well this week? Have you done anything interesting at all? Because I know everything feels like Groundhog's Day, but has there been a standout moment from your week of of, uh, domestic internment this week? (laughs) Yeah, I had a picnic. I had a, a lovely sit in a park with two queer friends and we drank a couple of beers and ate some corn chips and it was so heaven. I mean, I've always loved picnics as long as there's like a public bathroom nearby because I've got quite a small bladder, which I know is why all the listeners tuned in today is to hear that little... Every week we just learn a little Um, bit more about you each time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You're welcome. But yeah, no, I love picnics and it was, yeah, I'm really excited about picnic season coming up. I've been thinking about like investing in like one of those like picnic tables that are like quite, so you sit on the ground and they're quite small and they've got like cup holders or something or, you know, just sort of thinking about ways to jazz up the picnic. So I yeah, that was really lovely this week. How's how's your week been, Francis? I also had a picnic with some friends. That was great. It was an interesting divide between the soft cheese people and the people who like the hard cheese at this particular picnic. I definitely fell in the hard cheese category. It's the things you find out about your friends when you go on a picnic. Not really a soft cheese person, but it was wonderful. We actually had a kick of the footy as well with some some local kids, so we decided from now on we're going to call them Kicknicks. Oh, that's nice. I want to get back to the main tension in our lives and the main conflicts in our lives being about, like, cheese viscosity. I don't want any more (laughs) sort of, like, scary arguments about vaccination (laughs) conspiracy theories in Facebook comments. I just want it to be like, hey, can we bring both types of cheese so we can all get along? Hey, speaking of picnics, if we ever are, maybe you and I can do a a broadcast from a picnic one day. Um, And if we do, I will be able to perform my picnic rug gag. It's a bit of a visual gag. Do you get it? Like Sally rug, picnic rug. Yeah, yep. fantastic. <laughs> what it, what happens is I lie on the floor. That's it. That's the, that's the whole joke. <laughs> uh, well, I can't wait to enjoy a picnic or a kicknick with you sometime soon. But when we do it, we're going to have to w- work out what time of the day we're going to do it and what time of the year we're going to do it because increasingly <laughs> our climate is going to determine more about how we do what we do and when we do it than ever before. And as we head towards COP26, which sounds like a, a sort of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, movie franchise, COP26, uh, but it's not. It's the in global uh, climate talks happening in Glasgow and Scotland in a couple of weeks' time. Seems like Australia, we're going to be in the naughty table, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll be in the naughty table if Prime Minister Scott Morrison actually shows up because you know, he's been doing what Mr Morrison often does and indeed like what his government is particularly known for is where they'll sort of float this idea, they'll say something kind of bananas just as an idea and see how it lands in the press, in public commentary, online. Prime Minister Morrison has been making sounds about like 
maybe he'll just skip it. Maybe he doesn't need to be there in person because, you know, Australia is still going through the coronavirus pandemic and he still really needs to be here, which like if it was any other leader, even if it was like Tony Abbott or someone, you'd be like, well, yeah, maybe that tracks, right? But Scott Morrison really hasn't painted a portrait of himself as a leader who really cares whether he's here or not during crises. Of course, I'm thinking about him popping over to Hawaii when half the country was in flames. And, you know, there's been a few uh, instances of these sort of strange secret trips, Father's Day stuff, where he won't sort of tell the public that he's having these little breaks or holidays or celebrations. And so it's pretty interesting to hear the Prime Minister say that he couldn't possibly attend this, you know, landmark global climate talks because he's got to be here holding a hose, holding the jabs, <laughs> what all the things he said that he hasn't held previously. Buying submarines, all that sort of stuff. Well, one Prime Minister mm. that is going to be there is Malcolm Turnbull, uh, Scott Morrison's bête noire. And, and Pablo Gonzalez on SBS News spoke to him about Turnbull's trip to Glasgow. He's going to be there. And he also had some rather stinging words about, uh, about Scott Morrison's attitude towards it all. This is an existential crisis. Also dubbed a climate crisis by world leaders who will meet in November for the crucial United Nations climate talks. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, though, is still unsure if he will attend as the trip will coincide with Australia opening up. What message do you think it would send to the world if we didn't have that representation from the country's leader? Pablo, history is made by those who turn up. So uh, if... uh Mr Morrison decides not to go to Glasgow, his absence will send a pretty strong message about his priorities. Pablo Vinales there on SBS talking with Malcolm Turnbull about going to COP26. So he's going to be there, but uh, Morrison might not be. And the reason why we're raising all this is because on today's podcast, we're talking about this very issue at a really sort of practical level because, Sally, climate change isn't just a theoretical idea. It's actually a lived experience for hundreds of thousands of Australian workers who now have to adjust the way they work because of the changing climate. I just think right-wing conservatives are so messy. They're always infighting. There's always drama between liberal politicians. Um, They're just always infighting and splitting up, right? (laughs) I sort of sat with popcorn watching Malcolm Turnbull sledge the Prime Minister who usurped him from his same political party. Um, It was quite extraordinary, some of the comments he made. And you're right, uh, Francis, climate change isn't happening down the track. It is here right now and we don't have to be living in a bushfire community or an island in the middle of the ocean that has sort of low-lying island or any of those things to be feeling the impacts of more extreme weather events, more extreme temperatures and the associated impacts to our environment. It's, It's affecting workers all around the country and the world right now. It is indeed. And Dr. Elizabeth Humphreys has been writing about this. Now, she has worked on a paper with uh, her colleague Freya Newman, which is called High Heat and Climate Change at Work. Uh, They work at the Climate Justice Research Centre at the University of Technology in Sydney. They presented this to a a union forum uh, just a couple of weeks ago, which looked at just how 
Climate change is changing radically the way Australian workers have to work, the impact it's having on their health and what the future looks like. And Dr Elizabeth Humphreys is our guest this week on The Job. On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Climate change, we can't wish it away, Sally, as much as some in uh, the political and business class would like to do. It's here to stay and we need to deal with it. And for workers, it's more prevalent and important than ever because it's affecting them on the job, week in, week out, hour by hour. And that's something that was referenced in a really interesting uh, forum that was held by the ACTU oh, a few weeks back. And it was predicated around a paper that's been written by Dr. Elizabeth Humphreys and her colleague Fran Newman at the Climate Justice Research Centre at the University of Technology in Sydney. The paper's called High Heat and Climate Change at Work. And I'm glad to say that Elizabeth Humphrey joins us here on the job today. G'day, Elizabeth. How are you going? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. It's one of those things that we talk about in the abstract climate change, the change in temperature on the planet and how it's going to affect the environment. But in real terms, day to day right now, it's having an impact on individual workers and the way they're doing their work, isn't it? That's exactly why we decided to do our research on climate change in the way we did. Often we do talk about climate change as being quite an abstract thing. It can be difficult for some people to sort of grapple with, well, we have this possible future, but it's not here yet. What will it look like? But climate change is impacting already, not just in rising sea levels and problems for small island nations, but day-to-day on the job for many workers who are exposed to extreme weather and particularly forms of high heat. For a lot of people, when we think about climate change impacting industry and impacting workforce, I think people would be forgiven to immediately think about tourism operators on the Great Barrier Reef or, you know, people who work in, again, tourism in bushfire-affected areas, you know, thinking about, you know, the natural world and the effect on the natural world and, and jobs directly relating to that natural world. But this incredible piece of work. You spoke to 800 workers from a really diverse range of industries. Can you tell us sort of who these workforces are? Well, obviously, one of the easiest ways to get to talk to workers in big numbers is through their trade union. And so we have been working with the United Workers Union and partly with them because they've been trying to push on climate change generally as going to have having current and having future impacts, but also because they employ a really diverse range of workers. They have people working in manufacturing and warehousing. They have people working outdoors on farms in agriculture. They have a huge number of teachers' aides and cleaners in schools in Queensland and paramedics and firefighters in the Northern Territory. They also have home care workers working with people with disabilities, caring for them all over the country. And so for us, that gave us access to quite a diverse range of workers, a good mix of gender as well. So we could see like what's happening in different industries that might be more male dominated, might be more dominated by women. And it was pretty unsettling actually to be reading some of the responses to how high heat impacts these workers, particularly workers who are essential workers and often low paid workers who might have very little ability to push back against the physical demands on themselves in terms of productivity and high heat hitting at the same time. 
Yeah, you actually quote one of the workers uh, in the presentation that I saw yesterday. I'll just read out that the quote that you chose from one of the people you interviewed. Like, they've got a lot of stuff in writing saying, it's an extreme day. We'll rotate people and everyone will get an extra five-minute break each hour. But that's rubbish. It just doesn't happen. You know, they say you can do it, but you just haven't got the manpower to be able to do that. So... There's a lot of hot talk in the hot weather and very little action to help workers from what they're telling you about how businesses and employers are responding to the reality of climate change at the moment. That's right, Francis. There's some really great research has happened from health and epidemiological people on what happens to the body in high heat. But there's been less work done on workers' voices being put in the centre of what do those stats and those figures and those excess deaths and people fainting at work, what does that mean for the individual workers and the sort of pressure and stress they're under? So it's no accident that the report tries to put front and centre the voices of workers because they're the ones who both are experiencing it but also can play a big role. Like once we start to connect together concretely in our arguments about climate change and its impacts at work already, workers have a real role to play in articulating their experience um, of climate change and it becomes concrete, right? That's, that, that's the key thing. So when I was a child, I remember there was a really, really hot summer day And we all got sent home from school because it was like, I think we hit 42 degrees or 45 degrees or something. This is over in Perth. Like it was so hot that they had to close the school because that was the, you know, the rules from the department or whatever. What is the state of heat management plans or regulations, you know, around the country? Is this an industry by industry thing? Is it workplace to workplace that people have heat management plans? What's the kind of state of play here? In general terms, Sally, there's sort of two things. Uh, One is the normal occupational health and safety frameworks that say that risks for workers need to be eradicated and if they can't be eradicated they need to be minimized through changes at work and PPE and things like that then you can have you people have individual enterprise agreements and those can include clauses for cutoffs for work so in construction in some states there are cutoffs where work needs to stop but not all states It's really variable. Different people process heat differently and you can acclimatise to heat. So people who work in like Darwin or the north of Queensland might think it ridiculous that there might be a 35-degree cutoff in Victoria for high heat, but people adapt somewhat. And so it's quite complex about how to manage it in one sense, but in another it's quite clear when you're getting down to individual agreements in individual states about what in general is reasonable to manage high heat. And it often can be stopping work. And remember, like it can be extremely hot indoors as well as outdoors, but also being able to slow down at work, be able to take extra breaks so you can rehydrate. And there's also issues around resourcing. So it's not like firefighters or paramedics can just say, oh, no, it's too hot. I'm not going to work when they're at a 
road accident. The issue for them is if they're if they're out on a freeway and you know underfoot it's fifty degrees on the bitumen below their feet. It's a question of whether they can rotate off to where ice jackets and cool down and another team come on. And that's entirely within the powers of employers, whether they're state governments or private employers, giving workers enough colleagues to rotate off and enough sort of resourcing. This is going to be a real battle going forward with attempts to really minimise, say, the number of fire stations and firefighters we have in cities. The hotter it gets, the more we need to actually have people you know, ample people so that we're not putting emergency service workers at risk. And we're not just talking about this in the abstract, are we, Dr Humphries? Looking at the stats you presented in this forum you spoke at, uh, on hot days, more than half, 58.1% were affected by workplace heat, quite a bit or very much, and just over 30% were somewhat affected. So there's, you know, nearly on 90% of people are in some ways noticing that the heat that they're working in is affecting them quite directly. And the the, uh, scary thing is, I guess, is that in the more casualised workforces, places where unions aren't as prevalent, they're more ripe to exploitation, aren't they? It's a lot harder to assert your occupational health and safety concerns if you don't have that collective uh, voice that's going to work on behalf of all workers. And that leaves a massive gap, doesn't it? It does. There's a reason why there's a temperature cutoff in construction agreements in some of the major cities. It's because the unions and the workers there have enough power to assert and get that in the agreement. But when we're talking about migrant fellow workers who might be on temporary visas working in agriculture, there's a real power differential between them and their employers in terms of being able to slow down how much fruit you pick or how many veggies you pick. And the other sort of startling figure you probably picked up on was that only 2.5% of the workers who we surveyed had taken action over heat stress. And yet, huge numbers had said that it severely impacted them. And 20% had had to stop work at some point because it was so hot or called in sick, unable to work. So, when you think about the sort of lack of power that some groups of workers can exert. In a previous project, we talked to bicycle delivery riders, either delivering food or delivering documents. Some of them were employed by employers. Most of them are working, you know, their life governed by an algorithm that doesn't allow them to slow down in high heat to do basic stuff like um, rehydrate. And if they stop work, they don't get paid. That's the other thing. Like for many of the workers we spoke to through the United Workers Union, they were permanently employed and had been in their sector for a while. But of course, labour hire, casual workers, people who are gig workers or peace workers, huge amounts of risk and potentially in situations of much less power. So we're in a situation now where workers are aware of the cost to them personally, but it must be starting to stack up on the economics of work as well in terms of businesses and, you know, the loss of productivity, which is an an obsession when it comes to uh, these particular discussions. That must be starting to manifest itself as well. So there's got to be a level of self-interest there with employers to make sure that their workers can actually be productive and can work in environments where they can do their very best work. Or am I being a little bit naive about that? No, if you read the reports put out by the International Labour Organisation, they're talking about huge reductions in productivity and the ability to work internationally, the equivalent of millions of jobs. 
So any employer should be aware that there are massive problems in terms of profitability and productivity on the horizon. And Australia's a country that is absolutely at the centre of increasing heat and increasing extreme weather events. Whether that means they will, through their goodwill, follow through with things that will protect workers on the ground is another question. But there are absolutely massive financial impacts from climate change, particularly with heat. Yeah, it just, it feels like so much of work and how we as human beings work now and into the future is going to be impacted by the natural world. Like I'm thinking about the pandemic, obviously, and how, you know, there's been a big funding announcements to ventilate schools and to be like, oh God, like, you know, we have to completely change the way we are going to the office or not, or whether we are congregating indoors or not, or whether we're travelling across borders or not. And then climate change and the, the impacts of global warming is adding another level on top of that again. It's like workers around the world can no longer ignore the natural world. I think that's right. One, I guess, encouraging thing we found in the research is that over 50% in every state and territory in Australia, workers feel that climate change is impacting working conditions. So they were asked, like, do you think climate change is impacting working conditions? And they're saying yes. Now, That's important because it means that people are drawing a connection between climate change, seeing those big issues of how it's managed at a global level to what they see or they have experienced in their workplace. And in the end, partly we've got to work out how people can, I guess, fight and have input and organise around the issue of climate change. So rather than unions potentially saying, here, let me explain to you why climate change is bad, um, which many workers know already, of course. It's about saying, what are our collective experiences and problems that we're seeing, problems for ourselves, our colleagues, for the patients we care for, for the kids in our schools and childcare centres, and how can we take that worry and stress from those experiences and do something about it? What I like about the report that you've written also is that Sally was talking about the fact that we're playing catch-up with the pandemic and the changes that's created for our working lives. But you're suggesting in your recommendations that governments at all levels need to be proactive and get ahead of this by having consultation with workplaces and workers to change OHS, Occupational Health and Safety Industrial Frameworks, uh, to deal with climate change and its impact on workers before it starts to really become super critical, abolish restrictions on bargaining content and make clear workers have an unambiguous right to bargain around climate change and its impact in the workplace, which is a change in mentality with a lot of conservative governments who don't like workers collectively bargaining on these things, a sort of enforcement regime around PPE and hydration breaks, which as we heard from one of the workers earlier, Elizabeth and Sally, sure, there's a lot of lip service to it, but there isn't any real framework around actually following through on that and being rigid with the way you do that. So are there other things also, Dr. Humphreys, that in those recommendations that are really important that actually shifts this along a little bit and gives workers a level of comfort that employers and the government understand that things are changing and workers need to be protected. We need a plan. 
right? That it's as simple as that. There were two two articles that came out in a new heat and health project in the Lancet, which is one of the leading medical journals in the country. And the main thing they say is there needs to be national and regional plans to deal with the health impacts of climate change. Now, they're very concerned, obviously, about excess deaths, the number of people who will be killed by climate change over the normal number of deaths. That's also what the pandemic is about, uh, you know, as Sally just raised. It's about making sure we absolutely minimise the number of excess deaths. Every person's life counts, whether they've got underlying conditions or whether they work in a job that puts them at risk. And we often think about risky jobs as being a firefighter, but I can tell you that some of the things from workers that most stick in my mind are the cleaners who worked in meatworks, who when we asked them about the impact of COVID, they talked about the utter stress their bodies were under in full PPE, in plastic balaclavas, in, you know, hot workplaces, exerting themselves cleaning. None of them were saying we don't want the PPE. They understand that Meatworks were a really high-risk exposure site in Australia, the US and other countries. But what they're saying is help us manage our work in a way where we can not be under that sort of sort of stress. And, you know, another one was a dental nurse who worked in a caravan with air conditioning that wouldn't work properly in full PPE in a Queensland summer. This is enormous physical and mental stress that people are under. And so here we have climate change and a pandemic and workers who don't have a lot of agency in their workplace being forced to go day after day and work in incredibly difficult circumstances. And so you have those at one extreme and then you have like the home care workers who were saying there was one worker, Francis, who said, you know, last time we had a general meeting at the end of the year, I asked, what if there was some kind of big problem and we were stuck out in the middle of nowhere with a patient? What would we do? And people laughed saying it was silly, I asked. And then we had the pandemic. So I think there's also that stress of caring for others in some industries where you're responsible for patients, you're responsible for kids, you're trying to supervise them outside, you're standing in the high heat, you've got cleaners in schools doing extra cleaning. There's a lot of stress um, in those situations and workers really said that as well. The high heat means everybody sleeps worse, they're grumpy with each other and it creates workplace environments that are just not pleasant to be in. Employers have to take responsibility to put on enough staff to put in place the sorts of um, processes that allow people not to work under those levels of stress and absolutely minimise the chance that people end up dying or having illness um, through exposure to high heat. Dr Humphreys, where can people read your report? Is it available online somewhere if people want to follow up and and, uh, dive into it? If they just Google United Workers Union High Heat, it will take them to the report. But we have a website called toohottowork.org and you can read about all our research on that website. Dr Humphreys, thanks for being with us on the job. My pleasure. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Francis.
Dr. Elizabeth Humphreys there, our guest here on The Job. Her paper called High Heat and Climate Change at Work is uh, is an important read as we head towards COP26. So I haven't got the uh, definitive answer from you, Sally, before we go, the picnic rug. Are you soft cheese or are you hard cheese? Or are you both? Wow. Are you, are you poly cheese? <laughs> Why do you put me on the spot like this? I feel like when there's big questions, you need to brief me beforehand. Um, like I'm omni cheese, I'm pan cheese. Um, I love a mild blue, but I think my favourite cheese is parmesan as a topping, but also just like eating a square of it. An underrated way of eating parmesan. What <laughs> the fuck? You've got, to entertain yourself. You've got to entertain yourself in lockdown somehow. That might be my weekend sort of right there. Just working my way through 200 grams of Parmesan, just chewing on it. That- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sally. Have a fantastic week ahead. And you too. Talk again soon. Bye. Don't forget to uh, give us a rating on uh, your podcast app, whatever it is. Give us some stars and a review. It helps people find the pod, the inspiration, the information. Follow Sally at Sally Rugg on Twitter, me at St. Frankly, and we'll catch you next week on The Job.